Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the recording of the very good beginning and also telling us of how it all went sideways. Lord, how our desires for pleasure overruled our desires for you explains a lot. We thank you more that the story doesn't stop there, Lord, that you have come up with a solution for us through your gospel, and you've told us of the very good end. Lord, we pray that today our desires will be drawn to you and the irresistible grace that you offer. We pray for our brother Toby as he comes, and for this hour that we look into your word. Teach us the things that we need to know for life and living it abundantly. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I said we went uh, on the men's retreat, and it was uh, was it was quite good. The, I mean, the accommodations, the food, the teaching, the conversation, the food, uh, the time together. The food. Um, <laughs> you can't just say food once in this list when you go to Wooded Glen because uh, the food is the food. So um, it's one of those things you just don't know until you go. But I will say that the most encouraging thing about the weekend was to hear the men of our congregation interacting with the Bible, both in the group uh, times together, as well as in private conversation. The whole weekend was on the centrality of the heart to human behavior, a biblical concept, um, and uh, it was just a joy to hear all of the different ways that God was growing us in the way that He has revealed that He has grown us in, in understanding where it is that why we do what we do. Um, and so we're, we're thankful for, for that weekend together. It's the reason why, the centrality of the heart is the reason why, actually, uh, this verse is so important. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That keep it there is the same keep in Genesis 2, that, that Adam is supposed to keep the garden. You remember last week, he's supposed to guard it. Guard your heart. 
Guard your heart. Why? Because all of the issues of life flow from it. But we're prone to wander, right? We're prone to sin. And it all started with this account that we read in Genesis 3. Last week, we looked at Genesis 2, the beginning of our collective story, uh, the story of humanity, the story that begins with two people in a garden and ends with a great multitude of people in a city, uh, still in the future. And uh, the thing about stories, uh, when it comes to them, there are basically five steps of development in the plot of a story. And uh, I have this, I did not come up with this, Uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name who came up with it, but essentially there's this opening exposition of kind of the situation, the characters. There is this rising action as uh, the story develops and tension grows, then the climax uh, of the story. Then there's this falling action where things are beginning to fall into place, and then there is the resolution, what is often called the denouement, where uh, all, all is resolved there at the end. And to this point in our study of Genesis, we've all been in that opening exposition uh, phase. We've gotten the idea who the main character of this whole book is. It is God. And uh, we've, gotten, we've got the setting. He's going to work amongst humanity. We've gotten that big picture, and God has zoomed in for us last week to the garden, to day six of creation, to the creation of man. Remember last week, God creates human beings to live in His world under His authority. He provided all that we needed to do that. But in Genesis 3 this morning, that's where that red arrow and the red word conflict comes in. Conflict is introduced. Sin comes into the human experience. Willful conflict, conflict, willful rebellion against God. And this fountainhead of sin in Genesis 3 flows with bitter water for the rest of the Bible and human history even to this day. It's the source of every other conflict we have. You know there are different kinds of conflicts in stories, right? There is uh, what's, I mean, it's person versus person, but it's labeled in short term man versus man, man versus uh, society, man versus nature, man versus self, even man versus the supernatural. And it's interesting that what the Bible teaches us is that actually all of these other conflicts, the man versus man and the man versus society and versus nature and versus self, it's all rooted in the conflict with God. Every horizontal conflict that we have is rooted in our conflict that is vertical with God. And actually, this is where this whole idea of the arc of a story even comes from. It's not that Moses was sitting around looking for a good storyline. He's thinking, where's that diagram? I knew I took English at some point in junior high. Where's that diagram of a good story so I can write one down? No, 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 no. The reason why you love stories like this is because it's a reflection of the greatest story, the story of what God has done in humanity. Every other story finds its source and its meaning and its substance and its goodness when it flows out of that. And so here we are where conflict comes in. Specifically, uh, the big idea here that deceived human beings sin against their good God, right? So God creates human beings to live in His world under His authority and quite promptly in the story, deceived human beings sin against their good God. It's really interesting as we actually look at this, and as we go through it, I would want you to keep this in mind, even as I do, that as we look at this very ancient text, we find a very contemporary experience when it comes to sin. This isn't just the story of how sin originally entered the human experience. This story actually is a kind of prototype for how sin always enters our experience. So let's begin, just three steps along the way through this story. First, we see that Satan deceives. Let's look at verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The deceiver here, the serpent here, is Satan himself. In fact, I mean, that's the traditional view that, that Martin Luther put it this way, the devil was permitted to enter beast as he entered the serpent, for there is no doubt that it was a real serpent in which Satan was and in which he conversed with Eve. And by the time you get to the end of the book, uh, uh, to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 12, you read, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So yes, uh, Satan begins with this one woman. He's going to speak to this one woman, but actually, in reality, in his full mission, he is the deceiver of the whole world. He has something bigger in mind than just this one woman at this one time. This is why Jesus calls the devil in John 8, the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. So think about the deception. What is Satan's goal as he comes to deceive? His, his goal in deception is to stir up <clears throat> doubt. This is the heart of deception. Did God actually say? And through the t- there's this emphasis there. There's an emphasis in the way the question is asked. Are you sure about that? Are you sure God, God... Did God actually say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And there are these little twists along the way of God's words that are brought out, some by Satan and some as Eve is actually listening to Satan. You can hear the deception in her voice. You can hear her being deceived, being deceived in, in what she says. Because this is not actually what God said, is it? There's a flavor of what God says, but it's not what God says. Here's what God said, chapter 2, verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And the focus, notice where the focus is here, because when Eve responds to the serpent, she says, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, this is where God said, This is where the God said comes in. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. You see, it's a very subtle shift here. There's a very, in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, what you have is a picture of the great liberality of God in giving to man. You may eat up freely of every tree in the garden. Everything is yours. I've given you everything you could ever possibly need. Eat, eat, eat. Just remember me by not touching this one. And what, does de- what is deception look like? Deception looks like this. Well, we can eat, but we can't eat that one. We can't even touch it or we'll die. Deception focuses us on the limits of God, which are right limits, good and good for us. I mean, this is what Paul says, the law is good and holy and just. But, it, but when we are deceived, our eyes are actually, we doubt the liberality of God. We doubt His goodness in giving to us. We we. we we doubt it. We doubt His words. It's like, well, did He say that? Right? We doubt God's words. And she adds to God's prohibition, neither shall you touch it. 
I mean, how many people throughout the ages have followed Eve's pattern in taking God's word and adding to it to make it more stringent? This was the, this was the sin of the Pharisees, was it not? Well, here's what the law says, but what we're going to do in order to protect so we don't ever get close to breaking that law is we're going to build a bigger law out here. God, we're going to keep your law safe, so we're going to build an even bigger law out here so that we never even get close to that law. And we're going to enforce this law out here as if it's the law in here. Not only do, did, did she, did, it, did, does deception bring doubt about God's words, it brings doubt about God's character. There's another subtle shift here, because all throughout chapter 2, the one who is making man, the one who is giving him life, the one who is giving him labor, the one who gives him a location to live in, the one who gives him the limits, the one who gives him the loving relationship with Eve. He is called Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, Yahweh, God's covenant name, which speaks to his faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his personal connection to his people. And did you notice what Satan called him? He's just God. Satan Satan loves to distance us from the personal nature of God, that God is just this kind of impersonal, cosmic dictator who is here to ruin your life. God is less of a person and more of really a force. Isn't that a lie that people believe today? Because when you watch shows on television that refer to some higher power, they don't even, they don't even speak of a higher power or a person at all. They say, Well, the universe is trying to tell me something. This impersonal approach is satanic at its core. Who else wants you to move away from the personal God? Satan himself does. And when we... In this doubt of God's character, I've just kind of paraphrased the kinds of things that are being said here. First, that God is holding back something good. God is holding back something good. That's what the serpent means in verse 4 when he says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. God is holding out on you. God is being stingy. I mean, your eyes will be opened. Don't you want your eyes to be opened? How could God hold this back from you? God's words in chapter 2 demonstrated how great a giver He is. And the only thing that Eve can think about, that the serpent focuses her on, is what is restricted from her. This is precisely how it still is today. It's what, would, it's what might be called the Veruca Salt deception. Do you remember Veruca Salt? Nobody remembers Veruca Salt. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Veruca Salt is the spoiled, rich girl. She has everything she could ever need, but she can't have the golden goose. Daddy, buy me the golden goose. And then she goes into a whole song about it. I couldn't get the song out of my head this morning. I want a feast. I want a bean feast. You know, and she just goes into all of these things, and Daddy, get me that because I have everything I could ever need, but I want that. Don't you dare hold back that from me. You're holding back something good. That is precisely what Eve said. This is also precisely what happens for for us in parenting Kids who are still under the authority of your parents. This is the temptation to believe that that one thing that your parents say, no, you really, no, we're going to have to say no on that one. Everything becomes about how restrictive the parents are. 
And all of us parents are nodding our heads. And, uh, you know, decades ago, our parents would have been nodding their heads as someone referred to us. Because I remember thinking that. I've, I've got a roof. I've got food. I've got water. I've got clothing. I've got... Um, I'm driving a vehicle. I'm, I mean, I could just like go on and on and on. But the only thing I can think about is how could you possibly expect me to be home at 10 o'clock? This is the deception of sin. This is what it does. Ultimately and primarily against God. This is what has happened to sexual ethics in our, in our country. Oh, God doesn't re- God, it would never be so restrictive as to hold back. God is just holding out on us here. And look, this isn't just about, this isn't just about, you know, same-sex issues. This is about young men and young women who think that somehow God is so restrictive to say. Wait until you are married. God is holding back something good. That's what we come to believe. That's that's how God's character gets twisted. He's given us everything good we could ever need. And all we can think is, man, if I could just have that other thing. That's where sin takes us. That's where the deception of sin takes us. The deception takes us there. Why? So that we'll go there. That's, that's why the deception is there. So the second kind of thing that's being say, said is that God won't really punish. God won't really punish. This is just an empty threat. God knows that when you eat of this, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. He's just saying this. That's why the surely die is there. It's actually two different words for die in the Hebrew that are right next to each other. It's like, you won't die, die. You won't surely die. It's the denial of God's justice, isn't it? Of God's faithfulness. God had said, you will surely die. And this impugns God's character to say, he won't do what he says he will do. It's the lie that says that because God is love, which He is, He'd never punish anyone. But do you know what a loving God does for the oppressed? Brings justice to the oppressor. Do you know what the love of God in Jesus is? It's not the overlooking of punishment. It is simply a substitute taking the full punishment that is deserved for our sin. It's not the absence of punishment. God's love is not the absence of punishment. God's love is that He will fully and furiously punish our sin in Jesus for us. This is the lie that also feeds this whole idea that God won't really punish. This is also a lie that's connected to the, but I'm a good person. I mean, I'm beating the curve when it comes to humanity. It's also the lie that feeds universalism. The idea that somehow we need to make God better than He actually is in the Bible. So what we'll do is we'll erase that whole judgment thing and we will find a way around it. We will do hermeneutical gymnastics in order to get to a place where we can say in the end everyone will be saved. Though the Bible teaches the direct opposite. Not everyone will. You see the deception that's there? We see it all around us, right? We could probably all tell stories about how we see it all around us. The question is, do you see where you can be deceived? To think that God is holding out on you. 
Because there's that one thing that's out of your reach that you really, really want, whether it's at work, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's uh, uh, in your family, whether whatever it is, and it's just out of reach, and God's not, for whatever reason, God is not giving it, and you just think, ah, how can God be good? Or you know the explicit commands of the Bible and how they say, don't do that. You think, man. Or is God really concerned about this? I mean, is He really so concerned that He would judge? This is the kind of deception that comes. The kind of deception that comes for the believer in Jesus, by the way, is this, is this very deception that is rampant on the radio right now. It is the idea that because God has given us grace, because we have been set free in Jesus Christ, that our sin as believers doesn't actually matter. That is a lie. I sit across the table from people whose lives have been destroyed by sin, by their own sin and by the sin of others. And it, it may make us feel good in radio land, but the reality is, is that every, every step we take in the pathway away from God erodes any assurance that we have that we actually belong to God. In God's kindness, He will not let us maintain the strength of assurance while walking in disobedience. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. So Satan deceives. Mankind disobeys. So Eve draws her conclusion. Look at verse 6 here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see how Lord God came back there? Did you note that? Did your eye perk up when you saw that again? When the narrator picked up, he said, Lord God. Now, what we see as man enters into disobedience that Eve has drawn her conclusion. Look at the first phrase in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Just think about that one phrase. Does that remind you of anything that maybe we recently read in Genesis chapter 1? And the Lord saw that it was good. This was the rhythm of creation. That word saw is not just to take in through the eyes. It is a word of evaluation. God saw that what He made was good. And He saw it according to His standards. And then He came to the conclusion, it is good. And in Genesis 3, verse 6, Eve evaluates the fruit of the tree by her standards and concludes, it is good. What God has called forbidden, she calls desirable. What God says will lead to certain death, she sees as an opportunity for enlightenment. This is, what, this is where deception takes us. Deception takes us to calling good evil and evil good. God is so restrictive that we cannot do that. And so deceived that we come to evaluate, not by God's standards. God's standards are no longer in view here. By our own standards to say, well, this will be good. And it's desirable. It's a delight to her eyes. Brings to mind 1 John 2, doesn't it? The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. The things of the world. And it was to be desired. Having been deceived, her heart has now so engulfed that 
deception that it becomes the only thing she wants. The, the deception has reached the very core of who she is. This is not an intellectual deception that's happening here. Her heart is deceived. Friends, this is how we actually know when we're deceived. When we come to conclusions that contradict God's Word, we are deceived. She has now called good what God has called forbidden. When there are things that I am willing to do at work to get things done, even if they aren't quite what the Bible teaches. You notice that language? That's usually the kind of language we use. That's not quite what the Bible teaches. That minimizes the sinfulness of sin. When we become convinced that it's okay to slander others in private, you know, without them hearing me, so long as I'm talking to a Christian friend or asking for prayer... We're deceived when we become to believe that worry is just a part of life. It's just a part of life. I'm just a worrier. Rather than the sin that the Bible calls it, do not be anxious for anything. And this deception leads to disobedience. There's no great exposition here. It's just a couple of sentences, isn't it? She took it. She ate. She gave it to Adam. He ate. Period. By the time you get there, it's over. Because the heart wants it. We know why she's doing this. Because her heart wants it. And so, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. Well, so in some way, the serpent was right. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. There's a little bit there, but it's not opened the way that he said it would be opened. It's open now to where they clearly see they've disobeyed and they are in shame. Their innocence is gone. Dear friends, sin cannot deliver on the promises that it makes. The sin that promised joy and life leads us to the grave. We just sang that. The sin that promises fulfillment leaves us empty. The sin that promises independence leaves us in slavery. The sin that promises pleasure delivers it temporarily and then brings a more permanent, deeper pain. A pain that, quite honestly, we don't fully feel in this life. So they see their shame, and they've sown the fig leaves, and they go and they hide. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and, the, and his wife hid themselves. It's interesting. I was just in, uh, in the, the, my office over here. And uh, I heard a voice from the fellowship hall, and I recognized the voice. It was my youngest son. And I heard his voice, and I immediately smiled. Are there voices that when you hear, you're like, ah, get to see him? That was not the response of Adam and Eve in the garden. They hear the sound, and they run and hide. This is another common feature of sin, friends it is to hide. It is to isolate. Sin would have us hidden. Sin would have us hide in my conversations with Christian friends by focusing on superficial things rather than ever opening up to confess my sin and my need for help and accountability. Sin would have me hide sin's severity by laughing at it rather than weeping over it. Sin would have me hide it by focusing on the sin of another person, the sin of my wife, the sin of that person I'm in conflict with at work, the sin of those people out there rather than my own. Sin would have me leave relationships where I am known to find a place of anonymity before I am found out. 
Sin would have me hide from reconciliation with others and leave relationships broken and awkward for the sake of some weird, perverted version of peace. Just because you're not yelling at one another doesn't mean that everything's okay. Division in relationships can be very hot with very loud words and it can be very cold with silence. I think I would encourage all of us to pay attention to the times when we want to isolate ourselves, when we want to get away from relationships that have been especially spiritually helpful, when we want to back off, when we want to step away, when we want to get away. I would encourage us to say, something's not right here. I don't know what it is standing here. But I can tell you it's not good, and, and I can guarantee the, the, the action to step away and isolate from another is not free from connection to sin. Sin is in there somewhere. Because God calls us to reconcile, even if it's I've been sinned against, and so I'm just going to just back off, I'm going to go away, I've been sinned against, I'm just going to run. Well, then as the one who runs, I disobey Luke 17, 3 and 4, which is if a brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he comes to you seven times in the day and says, not demonstrates over a long period of time whether I should forgive him or not, just says, I repent, you must forgive him. We're to be ministers of reconciliation. I'm disobeying that. We're to forgive one, be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, Ephesians 4.32. I'm disobeying that. Sin is not absent from that, that response to issues that isolates and moves away. A problem avoided is never a problem solved. If the goal is to make me feel better about the situation, then maybe isolation works. But that's not the goal for the Christian. Plus, it'll eat away at you. The goal for the Christian is to honor and obey God, to seek His glory in all things. And that sometimes, and that oftentimes, means moving into difficult situations, leaning into relationships where I have been avoiding us talking, but we need to reconcile. Sin would have us isolated. I mean, the last thing that sin wants is for us to be known. That's the last thing. Because when you're isolated, it's not just that you avoid dealing with it, it's that you can compound it. And you can just stay there and live there in that cesspool for a long time. Mankind disobeys. Finally, God diagnoses. Look at verses 9 to 13. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now I wonder when I read those verses what comes to mind. I wonder where you focus. I wonder if you've heard this text taught or preached uh, multiple times, because this is a, a central piece of the story of the Bible, so odds are you have. I wonder, I wonder what your mind immediately settles on when you think about this. Some will think about sitting next to their spouse and we're elbowing one another, right? He, it's the woman that he gave me. You know, there is a lot of blame shifting here, correct? It's huge. It's right on the surface. And Adam does not simply blame Eve. 
It's the woman you gave me. The ultimate source of the problem, God, is that you kind of messed up here. This, this is the kind of thing that we do all the time. Well, if I just hadn't run into that person, if this circumstance just hadn't arisen, well, who is the sovereign Lord over every second of your life? That hurts. Because then I can't blame my circumstance for my sin. I can't blame the fact that I ran into that person. You know, the one I've been avoiding from point number two. I, I, can't, run, I can't blame it on that person. And then Eve says, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, that's a, that's a fair summary of the whole story. But still, she's shifting the blame. I do want to point out actually three other things. I was going to point out two other things, but then I'm going to point out three other things. Why? Because. So the first thing is notice that Adam is primary here as God goes to diagnose. The order of how people appeared in the text getting to verse 7 was the serpent, Eve, Adam. The way in which God addresses is going to begin with Adam, then to Eve, then to the serpent, which we'll get to next week, and then he's going to roll back to Eve and Adam as well. But he's going to begin, God begins with Adam. I mean, if you just read the story, you're like, God, why are you starting with him? He seems like a bystander who was handed some fruit in verse 6. But God begins here, and actually the majority of God's words are directed to Adam. Because of what we saw last week, that God has created mankind with a particular order in the home. Adam is created first. Eve is is even named by Adam. He is intended to lead her. And when sin enters the home, Adam is called to answer. Because he's the designated leader. He's the designated shepherd. He's the designated pastor of this little home. And we'll look at that more in detail next week. But Adam is primary. The second thing, did you notice, did you notice that there was something God didn't ask? God did not ask, why are you afraid? Do you know why? Because sin put them in the direct position to be afraid of a holy God. It is a right response. But thirdly, and more generally about questions, did you notice this is something that is so beautiful. It is so wonderful. It is so awe-inspiring. In the midst of the deceit, in the midst of the disobedience, God is still good. What is it that Adam and Eve deserve at this moment Better than, more than annihilation, they deserve to be in hell punished forever. They don't deserve the joy of being annihilated and forgotten. They they deserve for the story to end there, and the rest of eternity will be demonstrating to Adam and Eve the holiness and goodness and righteousness of God in judgment on them. You will not bear fruit and multiply. You will not fill the earth. You will not go another step. You will be like Uzzah touching the ark, and you will just fall over, and that's it. And dear friends, that's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. And even with this, God does not come into the garden with thunder and lightning and a pronouncement of judgment first. He will pronounce judgment. He will make a statement about what will happen. But He doesn't start there. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever noticed that? God starts with questions. 
everything God says in this paragraph is a question. The reason God does ask questions in the Bible is never because God needs a little more information before He can make a decision. God is omniscient. God perfectly knows what happened. He knows about the deceit. He knows that's what she wanted. He knows that's what they ate. He knows where they are hiding. He asks questions for the sake of those to whom He asks. When God says, where are you, it should be an indicator to Adam the great distance he has put between himself and his God. He's not asking for geographic location. He's not asking for coordinates. He said, where, where are you? We know that kind of where are you, don't we? Because we get to places in life that we wonder, where, where am I? Who told you that you were naked? An indication they've been listening to a voice other than the voice of God. They've been attempting to snatch something that's not theirs. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is a gracious opportunity for them to confess their sin and take full responsibility for it. Did you notice in their answers? They did say, I ate. But they gave, I ate with qualifications, blame-shifting qualifications. A confess, friends, just listen. When you, when, when we have to, con when we need to confess our sin, not only to God but to one another and seek forgiveness, confession is not really confession if it comes with ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, it's just like this is what I did. It was sinful. I repent. Please forgive me. There's no sense in which my wife understanding why I sinned against her makes it any less sinful. All that matters is that I sinned. What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? I mean, that should just sit on them. And it should sit on us with such weight, the ruining of the relationship with God. As God asks these questions, He is being good to them. He is being kind to them. He is being merciful to them. They are meant to see their rebellion, to see their sin. Every time that God graciously helps us to see our sin, it is God's kindness to us. Every time that we hear His Word and it convicts our hearts of sin and guilt, it is God's kindness to us. It is a kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. So their eyes have been opened in some ways, but they need to be opened in the most important way, which is to see the way back to God. This is why in the New Testament, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. This is why we talk about becoming a Christian as having our eyes opened. This is why Paul prays for Christians that their hearts, the eyes of their hearts will be continually enlightened. That the eyes of their hearts would never just start to dim and close and shut off to who God is and His goodness. There's great help here, isn't there, when we, when we come to help one another. Because we're all counselors. We're all counselors. We're all counselors. When someone is struggling in suffering or in sin, this text helps us to know a, a really great way to approach it. How? With questions. Ask 
questions that draw out the heart. When parents, when you're correcting your children, what about begin with questions that would help them to see their own sin rather than just make the parental pronouncement and bang the gavel? Because what do we want our children to learn how to do? We want them to learn how to look for their own sin and see their own sin. And one of the ways God graciously helps us see our own sin is by saying, "What, Son, what is this that you've done? Did you do that? What does the Bible call that? How should you respond to that? What has Jesus done for you? You see, see, all I'm doing is asking a question. Begin with questions. When someone is suffering, ask questions. Where one of the questions I very often ask when someone is suffering, because when they come and they tell me all about their suffering, which I want to hear so that I can understand, I just one question I typically ask at some point is. Where is God in all of this? Because typically when they first sit down, God doesn't show up in the telling of the story. And I want our eyes to move to God. When someone is struggling in sin, ask questions and pray that God opens their eyes. When injustice seems to happen at work, ask questions. You may gain understanding you didn't have, or God may use that to bring to light to the people who were unjust that things have gone wrong, rather than us pouting and complaining and spreading gossip and, you know, and uh, putting out my resume tomorrow. I mean, this is not, I mean, begin maybe with questions. Some of the, I mean, some of the, you may end up at some point, you need to go to another workplace, but it's just the one day, right? Satan deceives, mankind disobeys, and God diagnoses. Deceived human beings sin against their good God. That is where the conflict in the story begins. If we just go ahead and put that, uh, yeah, that's where the story begins. And as the story of the Bible goes on, do you know what happens? The rising action happens. Sin goes far and wide and deep and complicated and all of these things. It reaches right around the world and engulfs all of humanity and all of the conflicts that are faced, the man versus man, the man versus society, the man versus self, the man versus nature. All of these other conflicts are rooted in the conflict we see that comes in Genesis chapter 3. And it rises and it rises until the good God who gave life in the garden is born in a manger and wraps himself in human flesh and comes to do for man what men and women cannot do for themselves. And Satan will come to him as well. And Satan won't come in a plush garden where he's got everything he could ever want. He's going to come to him in the desert after 40 days of fasting and he's going to say, Did God really say? He wants Jesus to question God's character and His words, but Jesus will not. He will not follow in the footsteps of Adam. Nothing is twisted in Jesus' mind. And Jesus Christ, the last Adam, goes to the cross to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to make atonement for our sins, to bear our guilt, our shame, Uh, so that we could stand before God clothed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And when Jesus is raised on the third day, He is the first of the new humanity that will be raised from the dead with Him. And all whose eyes have been opened by His grace and by the power of the Spirit who see their sin, see their Savior, and turn from their sin to Jesus as Savior are part of that new humanity. 
And now the falling action is that the nations are falling in line in that the gospel is going forward and people of every tongue, tribe, and nation are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ until one day when the denouement happens, when the resolution happens, and all of human history goes to where God has meant for it to go and we live in the city of God, at peace with God, free from sin's penalty and power and presence forever. That's the good news. That's where that conflict is going to go. So even as we wrestle about our own sin, I just talked with men just this weekend about, about something I think it was Richard Sibbs wrote in the 1600s, that, that why is it, he posed the question, why is it that God allows us to continue battling sin? Three answers. One, so that our eyes will look to the Lord Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection as our only hope. Two, so that we would never enter a day thinking, I've got this, and we depend on Him daily. And three, so that our longing for that resolution, for that denouement, will increase as we know Jesus Christ and as we fight against the power of sin. For all of those reasons, God ordains that we continue to fight against sin. The question, really, that we must finish with when it comes to our response to God, when it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to your response to the gospel, is the same question that God asked Adam. Where are you? Where are you? Amen. Let's take a moment to reflect on this and then I'll pray for us. Once I pray, our service will be over. But if you want to talk about where you are in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, please know that you can look to anyone around you who's a member of this church and talk to them. And you can come to see me or someone else who's an elder or deacon. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you because we are creatures meant to bow before a Creator. Because we are sinners, meant to bow before the Holy One. Because we are redeemed, meant to bow before our Redeemer. We thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for this insight into ourselves, not just into what happened in the garden, but what happens in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. We pray that we would resist the devil so that he would flee from us. We pray that you will give us discernment that we might not be deceived. We pray you would keep us from calling good that which is evil and calling evil that which is good. Keep us in your word that your character might remain clear in our minds. Create in us clean hearts that long for you and see you as the fountain of living water that satisfies our soul. Give us grace that we might hate sin in ourselves with a passion. 
and that we would hate sin in those around us also with compassion. Help us to be a people who help one another to avoid sin, to repent of sin, to grow in holiness. We cannot do these things alone. We need your help. We need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, we need you. We pray all of this in the name of our sinless Savior who died for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.